Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Still Watching. I am Katie Rich. I'm a voice you might recognize from previous seasons of Still Watching. And I'm here with another voice you might recognize from the recent past of Still Watching. Uh, my colleague at Vanity Fair, David Canfield. Hello, David. Hey, Katie. Um, we're here with another one-off episode of Still Watching. There's so much television out that we are abandoning the uh, one-show-at-a-time format, for now at least. Um, and we've sent Richard off to Cannes as well. Um, but we are going to spend this episode talking about all five episodes of Candy. The limited series on Hulu that premiered the week of May 9th had this kind of, uh, what I was going to say was an innovative airing schedule, except that it's the airing schedule that happened with the miniseries uh, forever <laughs> until uh, <laughs> the current age came along. Uh, where all five episodes, they aired uh, night after night. Night, uh, culminating on Friday the 13th. Um, it stars Jessica Biel and Melanie Linsky. It's produced by Jessica Biel and created by Robin Veith, who you will hear David talk to later in this episode about the series as a whole. Um, and David, you're kind of the perfect person to have this conversation with because you were the first person who I knew of who watched Candy. You wrote a preview piece about it uh, a few months ago, and you really piqued my interest in it before I had even seen it. Um, can you just kind of describe about what sucked you in about the show and what kind of gave you the feeling that it was something people would be talking about? Sure. Um, I really knew nothing about this case. Um, as we get into spring, uh, television, there's so much stuff mm. that when, you know, reps and studios are putting stuff on our radar, um, there's kind of a hierarchy of what we pay attention to. And this was one that Hulu was really excited about. Uh, when I started talking to them about it. Um, and I watched the first episode. I was pretty immediately drawn in by um, the tone, which is which is a little unusual for a true crime show. Um, it's It's got a little bit of <laughs> eerie lightness to it. It can feel very... Mm, that's a great, great phrase. It can feel very bright and um, unsettling in that sort of... It's got this 80s suburbia feel to it, and it really evokes that to the... <laughs> most unsettling degrees it could it can at times um and then you have two very different actors uh taking up the leads and jessica beal who's uh kind of moved more into this crime murdery space of late she of course did the sinner uh which was probably a big dramatic breakout especially on television um before this and melanie linsky who's a long working character actor um uh, who's having as we've talked about uh, a bit of a moment and really shines as betty gore the victim uh, in what emerges as a maybe murder, maybe accidental killing uh, between these two women. 
yeah, it's a story that I think if you're a true crime uh, aficionado, you might already know about. It was the subject of a really extensive two-part Texas Monthly series um, that ran in 1984, a couple years later, that you and I have both read and is, uh, to some extent, the basis of this series. Mm -hmm. It is a great read. Um, If you want to Google it, it's called Love and Death in Silicon Prairie. Great term. Um, And as you were saying, it is part of this really big wave of, uh, for lack of a better term, murder shows that we've Mm -hmm. been watching this spring. I mean, we really could have done an entire still watching about this, The Staircase and Under the Banner of Heaven at the same time, except uh, after after the the, the trilogy of We Crashed, uh, Super Pumped and The Dropout, it might have been too exhausting. <laughs> um, but you and I mean, we don't want to spend too much time talking about the other shows, but how has it been for you watching this in this kind of uh, true crime spring that we're having? I, I find it particularly fascinating because this is not the only show of those you mentioned where the circumstances of the death at the show center is are completely eternally unknown we will never know Mm -hmm. truly what happened between candy and betty essentially um candy went over to this woman's house her neighbor's house um in the in the morning on a friday the 13th and she left the house and betty was dead uh, with uh killed with an axe um and from there there have been endless uh debates and discussions (laughs) over what exactly transpired between the two, the likely instigator was the fact that Candy had had an affair with Betty's husband years earlier. Um, he's played in the series by Pablo Schreiber, uh, Orange is the New Black fame, among other shows. Um, but but yeah, you have this fascinating portrait of two women who somehow came to blows in this extremely bloody, violent confrontation, and nobody really knows why. And uh I found this show within the larger context of Spring's true crime wave really intriguing for the way it approached that, the way it decided to tackle the unknown. And it does that by essentially very knowingly, winkingly hewing to Candy's version of events and making it as clear as possible that this is but one perspective, but really committing to it wholeheartedly. Yeah. And I think the unknowability, not just of the crime, but of Candy herself is the fascination of yeah. this show. Um, and you get Jessica Beale in this really juicy main role, but not juicy in like some of the traditional ways. Like there's not a lot of screaming and crying. There's a lot of like her smiling and even looking directly at the camera sometimes or looking directly at other characters and for all the world looking like someone who's presenting herself authentically. And you kind of have to be like, is she just hiding a secret sociopath who can kill someone with an axe? Or is she both of those things at the same time? And after watching the whole thing, I'm I'm not sure that I know the answer. I'm not sure the show wants me to know the answer. Did did you feel like it got to the bottom of anything about Candy or if it wanted to? Not particularly. And I, I, I do wonder if that's going to be a source of frustration for some viewers. It, it's a very compact series at five episodes, which I think is one of its strengths. Um, yes. But you do have um, what I, I found to be a complicated decision, particularly on Beale's part, and I've spoken to her a couple times about the show, to commit to what Candy has told people about what happened. And so that means Mm -hmm. playing someone, and and there are a lot of um, details around her past that came into this case and sources of trauma that may have come up uh, in the confrontation with Betty, Um, but also the fact that 
you know, we should say ultimately Candy was acquitted uh, on grounds of self-defense before a jury. Mm-hmm. And a big reason why, as a lot of the reporting around the case has argued, is she was very popular in their community mm-hmm. and Betty was not. Uh, and Beale really leans into this, the bubbly persona of Candy Montgomery and church going, volleyball playing, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> dedicated homemaker who kind of is running a mile a minute, who's always got a smile on her face, who's always there to lend a hand. Um, and there are cracks within that, right? This has been mm-hmm. explored in endless tellings of Americana sure. and suburbia. But here, of course, it ends in a much more brutal fashion. And the extent to which the cracks are to exp- are, are there to explain that remains up for interpretation. But I think Beale does a really good job of leaning into her own star persona to present this extremely appealing figure and then just tweaking it a little bit to let you know that something's off yeah and it uh the way that it becomes more and more off as the show goes on like there's this moment in the fifth episode i think where she's at her trial and they, she's got her friends over for snacks yeah. uh, while she's on trial for for murder which tells you something about her and she's like talking about how she went into something called overkill mode that her therapist describes and then it's like telling her husband to eat some pretzels at the same time like she's got both of those things within her and like how many housewives especially of this period where um you know women were not maybe pursuing or given as many opportunities outside the home how many other of them have um have these depths inside of them that you can't see yeah and and she lets it be funny too uh and we talk about that a lot um in our interview is leaning into the comedy times there are these bizarre contrasts in what she's doing versus her circumstances that are worth maybe chuckling at while also recoiling or cringing and uh, I, I like that the show doesn't shy away from that yeah in the first episode which i think might be the strongest and we can maybe talk mm-hmm. about it in a little bit more detail later um she kind of repeats this story about what she was doing uh instead of killing betty when she was not yeah. admitting to the crime and she says i went went to betty's we got to talking and then i looked at my watch i thought i had time to go to target and get father's day cards and i drove all the way to plano but then i got to target and i realized my watch had stopped so i didn't even go inside <laughs> and she says it like three times kind of verbatim and that's like i'm reading that from the texas monthly article yeah. um and it's funny and it and when you see how she's getting away with this and then how she's also probably gotten away with um uh, bulldozing a lot of other people before it came to this point yeah exactly and i also love in the second episode i believe uh, when she begins her affair with uh alan betty's husband it's not this sort of subtle feeling each other out situation. She quite literally gets into his car, looks at him and says, I want to have an affair. And <laughs> Paul Schreiber is so great in the show. And he he plays him as this sort of sweet, hapless, maybe slightly dissatisfied working, working man. And he's just he's, he's ta- quite taken with the proposal. Yeah. Who's going to resist someone just getting in your car and being like, let's, let's have an affair. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, maybe before we get into the show in too much detail, we should just go ahead and uh, listen to your conversation with Jessica Beale and Robin Veith. Anything else? Uh, I mean, you're going to talk about the whole series. So I guess if you're not ready for spoilers, <laughs> spoilers ahead. Anything else people should know before we hear it? Um, if you haven't seen the cameos in episodes four and five, mm. we do talk about them quite a bit. And we'll we'll get into them more after the interview. Yes. So let's go ahead and hear that conversation. I'm Claire Fallon. 
And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Well, Robin, Jessica, um, this has been quite a week uh, of candy. And we just ended um, with uh, an episode that really gives you a version of events from one perspective, very intentionally, very um, a lot of awareness that we are getting one perspective. Uh, Robin, I'll start with you. Um, We spoke earlier about the first episode being very deliberately constructed uh, as the day of, and this in a way feels equally very deliberate in terms of the way you approach this finale. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do the, the finale in this way? Yeah, um, it was actually the result of many conversations with my fellow collaborators, Jessica and Melanie and Michael Uppendahl, the director, in that it, it was very important to all of us to um, really make clear to the audience that what we're presenting here isn't fact. It is Candy's version of the story. And um, to that end, we went through to great lengths to keep Betty, quote unquote, alive. Mm-hmm. So that as we're hearing Candy's story, we remember that there's another woman who is a very real person who didn't get to tell her story. So it was, it was a lot of conversations about how can we make that clear? Because so often when you film something, it's presented as fact. If you can see it in front Mm -hmm. of you, you take it as truth. So we did a lot uh, of experimenting and discussing and, and hopefully we, we stuck the landing in trying to make it visually interesting and compelling and yet still not let the audience off the hook in that like they need to do their work too, you know, just as we did. And, and, and you decide what you think happened and who you believe. Hmm. Um, Jessica, how did you find to that point playing um, a version of events that we are being told in, whether implicitly or explicitly, is not necessarily fact. Um, but is this person's truth, or at least stated truth? I, you just play it as truth. Yeah. Uh, at least that, that was my, that's my perspective always, is I, I really loved her and still do on many levels. You know, uh, I, I, I empathize with this character. I, I have parallel issues that I struggle with that she was struggling with. Um, and on, on a really like basic level, like I just had to believe her and I did most days. And then there were some days that I, that I wasn't totally sure. And Robin and I, and a lot of us talked about it, you know, well, how do you feel today about it? You know, like, (laughs) I don't know, I'm not so sure today, but, um, we'd go back and forth with, you know, these questions, but 
taking it down to like the, the basic way of finding your way in is, is just, just to really believe the story, you know, and have empathy and have an understanding of to how this makes sense. And, um, I was able to just, you know, suspend my own belief uh, about, you know, other things I have read or have had learned and had discussed with Robin or other cast members or whatever, that when we were shooting that section, that's, you know, big, uh, set piece, um, I was just able to like fall into the pocket and believe, believe the story. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that. That set piece that um, reenactment, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. How did you both talk about the feel of it, uh, the blocking of it, the mechanics of it? Um, how did that come alive from conception to the actual filming of it? Jessica, I'll start with you. Well, it, it, like, like Robin was saying, it changed a lot, right? She yeah. had written it this one way and then she had this sort of epiphany moment and then it was going to be a totally different thing. And then, then, so like the pendulum swung and swung and then she kind of really landed on what we shot. And, um, it was amazing what we did in my opinion, because we got the best of both worlds. We got this sort of surrealist kind of experience in the courtroom, which we, which initially wasn't in the script. It was one of the things that Robin had this idea about, which was super cool. And it brought Betty back into our, our mind. And, you know, we really were able to like, to your point, and like you're saying, see that this is one side of the story. And then we really were able at the same time to show this horrific act. And the idea really was not to glorify this violence. Like that was the opposite of what we wanted to do. And obviously Robin, you can talk more about like how deeply you felt about not glorifying the violence. Cause we, we spoke about it at length. Um, but it, to, in my opinion, it just felt highly important after we decided that we wanted to actually shoot the fight sequence and, and, and show it all in its entirety that we, um, we show it every step of the way that Candy told to the courts from the documents, the evidence, all of the, the court documents. So pretty much every move in that fight was exactly what Candy said happened. We even had some sections that our choreographer had thrown in because we were, I don't know, trying to find a transition or doing something that Robin said, no, we're not doing that. That's not what Candy said happened. It was very specific to what she said had happened. And the choreography really, um, really re represents that in a, in a truthful way. Hmm. Robin, you want to? Yeah. That? I mean, that was sort of the, the responsibility that we all took on our shoulders is that if we're going to show this, then let's not give candy any argument she didn't make for herself um if we're going to show her side of the story then let's show it precisely uh how she said it went down and you know if that means that like something doesn't quite make sense from one move to another well that's something to think about <laughs> you know, yeah yeah but um totally yeah and 
you know, the, like Jessica said, the, there was a moment where I, as as cuts were coming in, I, I was realizing how convincing Jessica's performance was. And I started getting very afraid <laughs> of shooting the fight sequence because I was like, people are going to think that this is that we're saying this is what happened. Right. And, um, you know, I, I had an agreement with Jessica and Melanie from the very beginning that um, we weren't going to leave Betty by the wayside. You know, like we were going to do this woman as, as, as much justice as, as we could and, and fairness and being fair to both of these women. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was one point where I, I was just like, we're not doing the fight. And I wrote Jessica this huge monologue just taken basically from candy's words i was like she had to sell this in court let's let her sell it to the audience um and it was funny because uh we shot that um jessica doing this this monologue where she says what's going on and i came down i I came to set and watched um a take and i was like i believe her (laughs) i was like well that's problematic too (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then the funny thing was, is that we the next day shot the opening of the finale, which is sort of the prosecution's reenactment. Was right. it? And at the end of that, I was like, I believe them. <laughs> 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 I was like, OK, maybe this is working. But um, from the very beginning, we I had written the fight sequences because another thing that's important to me was um, this depiction of female rage which mm-hmm. isn't spoken about a lot. And people, I think, like to pretend doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it became this sort of balancing act of getting both. And, and that's how it ended up cutting together the way that it was. And I'm just very, very fortunate and thank my lucky stars every day that I had Jessica and Melanie and Michael who just said, we trust you. And, you know, Melanie was willing to say a line in three different locations to make sure that in the ultimate edit, it would land the way that we needed it to. Hmm. (laughs) Jessica, can you talk a little bit about tapping into that uh, element of rage? That is a really, uh, a really strong through line in the show. Um, Obviously with candy, it's a little bit more complicated because the argument is, and the story is her story is that it was uh, self-defense. Um, but there is this uh, really burning, I think, part of her character and her journey in the show um, that does speak to um, rage, as, as Robin was saying. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm mad. <laughs> so I had no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Interview over now. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> um, no, I mean... I'm sort of kidding and also not kidding, right? I, I feel like w- women have been marginalized and uh, told to be a certain way and told that their bodies have to do a certain thing at a certain time and, you know, whatever, et cetera, forever. So there's a lot of things that I, I can understand. I, I feel angry about a lot of things that happened to me in my life that I'm still trying to understand how to communicate about. Um, that I have no problem tapping into. I mean, the release of, of stuff that's happened to us all historical things. Um, I get it. 
I feel it too. I think we all do. Um, men too, right? You guys aren't uh, uh, extinct from that. Um, but I really understood her because I'm working on the same stuff that she's working on, you know, how to communicate better with my partner, how, how to tell somebody I'm not okay with this. I don't want to be perfect all the time. I don't, this isn't me. I'm trying my best to be something that you want me to be, that my business wants me to be, that the world is comfortable with me being, but I'm not comfortable with it. And I don't know how to tell you that. Like, I really get it. I feel that all the time in a, in a much smaller way. And I have, I am working on different outlets to re, you know, I have more support to work through those feelings than she did at that time. And mm -hmm. she didn't have those systems. She didn't have the tools. She didn't know that community wasn't supporting like, you know, a therapy therapy or anything really. Right. So it wasn't very hard to understand that kind of rage. Um, and I guess the thing that's really interesting that I was really thinking about is it could have been anybody in front of her at that moment. Mm. She got triggered by that friend. But if, if it had been somebody else, I, I think she, it, 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 I don't think, you know, this wasn't necessarily like I'm raging on you, Betty. It's like, I'm raging on everything that's ever happened to me in my life. Like she just happened to be in the wrong place. You know, on some level, I feel like that's probably a truth some kind of truth in there. The self-defense, you know, that is the part of the story that we just don't know and we will never know. And um, it's end endlessly fascinating. Like Robin says, I believe, I believe her one day and then, and then you watch that reenactment sequence and I don't believe it all because the sunglass lens is outside in the garage yeah. with no blood. Like what, you know, like how did it happen? And the door was closed. It makes no sense, you know? So I get it. I get the female rage. Um, and I, I empathize with it. Uh, Robin, I wanted to ask you a genre question because uh, the show plays with genre a lot, comes in uh, very much as a true crime tale uh, and subverts a lot of those expectations. And it, it ends in some ways a very courtroom drama-esque mode while still being what candy what candy was at the beginning um how, how did you find that part of the show bringing that element into uh, the narrative and maybe having a little fun with it um you, you know part of it is just uh my own <clears throat> feelings of um or worry of uh inadequacy and in that um writing courtroom scenes is a very specific skill mm -hmm. that's incredibly difficult to make compelling because largely people are stationary you know you have people sitting and you know and so the, uh out of fear of not being able to pull that trick off because like i said it, it's extremely difficult and when people can do it you can tell and they do it really well mm -hmm. um i was like okay so how can we tell the story with this little in the courtroom as possible. <laughs> um, and, you know, and once you open that door, um, you know, like once we got to the finale, Jessica and I would say all the time, like, there's no rules. There's no rules anymore. We can, we can do this however we want. Um, all the, you know, 
traditional binding things of, of visual storytelling, or anything like we don't, we don't have to do that. We can, we can do this the way that, that we want to, and why not try something new? So, you know, we did most of the prosecution's case in the teaser by having, you know, the officers present the case to the DA. And so then we don't need to go over that again in court. And it's a much more compelling and interesting way. And one that's that really sort of sells their idea more than if you would do it in court, I think, because you can see them moving through the space and you can see how their version of events could reasonably happen. Just like when you see Candy's version later, that could reasonably happen. Um, so that's largely where it came from, was uh, my concern that, I, that I, I don't have that courtroom writing skill. <laughs> <laughs> And so you created a new category. I love it. <laughs> Subcategory maybe is a better way of putting it. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do need to ask about two um, very intriguing casting elements of these last few episodes, uh, which is uh, your husband, Jessica, um, Justin Timberlake, and Melanie Linsky's husband, Jason Ritter, um, who play uh, who play roles that take on a kind of meta quality in this series. Uh, where did the that idea come from? And, and how did you... Uh, work them into the narrative in what I felt was a kind of ingenious, uh, smart way. Uh, whoever would speak more to that, I will throw to you. I'll start, and then Robin, you're gonna take it out, take it off. Okay. Over. Um, Justin was reading the scripts because I give him the scripts all the time. Whatever I'm doing, check this out. What do you think? Give me some notes. What it, you know, whatever. We do it a lot back and forth, and um, he uh, apparently he read episode four. And he called Michelle Purple, my producing partner, and said, oh, well, wow. what's going on with um, this character, Steve Jeffball? Like, what's the deal? And she's like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm a, a, probably a local, you know, local, local hire. We spent our money, you know, on, on this other cast. <laughs> so somebody great local. And he said, well, I really think I can, I think I see a way in here. I want to play this part. And she's like, yeah, all right, okay, you know, <laughs> sure. And then he's like, no, for real. She goes, are you serious? And, and she said, he said, yes, I'm serious. I really, really find this finding, I'm finding a way in. And she said, well, we got to call Jess. So Justin comes and asks me about it. And I said the same thing, like, ha ha. So funny. Wait, are you serious? You know, we can't pay you. Right. You know, it was just like <laughs> these three items, these three moments. And I said, hold on. I got to call. I got to, you know, call Michelle. And Michelle was like, I already know about it. He already talked to me about it. So then Michelle called Robin and I think you guys had a great creative meeting, right, Robin? Well, it, the, the funny thing is, is that I've never been more flattered in my life than all <laughs> of the hurdles that these people went through in order to present the idea of the insanely talented actor, Justin Timberlake, <laughs> wanting to be in my show. Because Michelle <laughs> then called Nick Antosca my co-creator. And there was like all this talk. It, it's so sweet because it, it was all in service to the fact that they wanted to give me the option to say no. Um, right. And um, I thought that was incredibly sweet. And who would say no? <laughs> like, like I, said, I mean, he's an insanely gifted actor, lovely human being. And then, you know, the, the, then we get Melanie Linsky show, sending pictures, like holiday pictures of her husband, Jason, with their daughter. And Jason's just got this like massive mustache. And we're like, what's he doing the next? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and like you said, like, I'm, I'm glad you got it because um, 
you know, it, it became this, I, I can justify anything that I want to do, you know, and, but I was telling Jessica and Michelle, I was just like, we're geniuses, you guys. Like, this is an insanely meta moment where Justin and Jason are playing characters, playing characters played by their wives. And what I love about it is that it's this very meta statement that is in service to our overall theme, which is this like, this is not a documentary. You know, like you are watching a show, you're watching a dramatization, you're watching a version so it, it all came in service to our ultimate goal, I think. And you get two insanely talented actors at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are no slouches. <laughs> did, did anything, I suppose, come up or did anything surprise you in the way they portrayed you, Jesse, <laughs> Melanie? Like, what, what, it, what was it like seeing that kind of mirrored back at you? I mean, it was so funny. <laughs> just the idea of when Robin brought this to us, like my head was exploding. I was like, this is, this is genius. I mean, it just, they, it was just a, such a funny idea. And that's, that's been the whole thing with the show. It, it, it has this, it has this sort of completely demented, like irreverent sense of humor. And every day I kind of was looking around like, are we making a comedy? Am I, are we making a comedy? You know, like, I think we might be making a comedy today. And it, when those guys got together on set, like when I finally saw that reenactment, because I wasn't there that day. It was so hilarious to me to watch them because they had just told me, like, we're trying to figure out if we should be like, hey, y'all. Hey, Candy, it's me. Come on in. Like if they were going to play the girl versions or if they were just going to be like, hey there, Candy Morin, it's me. I'm Betty. Come on in my house. And they decided on that version of just <laughs> right. like dudes just trying to do their wives, which is like, <laughs> I mean, at the time, it's just so it's like patronizing and ridiculous and funny. I mean, it just turned out so well. It's like it, it surpassed my wildest dreams of like how how funny that sequence and moving it was like it was very moving that goes mm -hmm. from this like strange, funny, weird, then like really heartbreaking when Justin's characters talking about the babies crying this whole time. And you're like, Whoa, what's happening with this guy is getting so affected. Um, and I think honestly, it was such a good breather. I think people who, you know, have watched the whole thing, they say, they've said to me, Oh my God, it was so good. Just sort of like have a laugh, you know, before we like launch off into the rest of this intensity, which is, I mean, episode five is intense. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I was just tickled by the whole thing. Jason makes me, Jason just makes me laugh. Justin makes me laugh. Those two should be in a buddy cop comedy or something. <laughs> oh, wait, we had a show for them. Didn't, didn't we? Diff, no, Diffy, 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 Denny and Big D's or something. <laughs> double, double D's. Double it was double D's. <laughs> and Choir Boys. <laughs> yeah, Choir Boys, which is the Pablo and Tim spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, love it. Uh, well, well, I'll use that to Robin pose my last question to you, which is the show can be very funny at times, and it does a lot of different things within this um, gruesome, shocking event. Um, this is uh, airing as part of a podcast about true crime shows, Spring of True Crime, uh, and this show is a great example of how expansive that uh, 
definition that that label can be. Um, can you speak to that at all? Um, coming into this as a true crime, true crime tale, and bringing so much to it that maybe we wouldn't expect. Um, you know, it's I I love to say that there was like an overall design or something, but it's honestly just how I experience life is you know, things are tragic and funny at the same time. You know, I was raised, um, you know, by Irish Catholics and Germans, you know, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) we revel in both of those things. And, um, you know, everything that that Tim was doing as Pat is from the Rolodex in my head of my grandfather's greatest hits, who just Hmm. believed that kids were put on this earth as his personal toys, you know, to play with as he wanted to. no, but I, I think I think that's that's life. Like everybody is good. Everybody is bad. Um, you know, you can be crying one moment and laughing the next. And it's just it's just what feels real to me. And it's just become the way that I write. And much like Jesse was just saying, like, are we making a comedy? When I when I first started sending this around, people were like, it's so funny. I'm like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I mentioned the first episode earlier. I don't know if we want to go exactly episode by episode because I think, to, it, like many limited series, I think this really plays out more like a like five hour thing than yeah. distinct episodes. Um, but I did think the first episode, the way that it cross cuts both of their days and like the tension of knowing what's coming and then knowing what's coming after and kind of watching Candy go about her business after this incredible crime was really inf- effective. And it, I think like it it intrigued me about this show so much. Um, which is, you know, for a five episode series, it's not that big a commitment, but I, um, I think it, it, it does a good job of winning you over. Yeah, the, the heart of this show in a lot of ways is depicting these two women with equal agency and intrigue. And that's something you can't necessarily do in the aftermath of the killing. Uh, they do. Mm-hmm. There are interesting strategies to keep Betty uh, within the series and uh, her presence and her her heart is is present um certainly in the show later on but she's actually going about her life in the same way that candy is in those first few episodes um yeah i spoke to robin veith in another conversation about that first episode and and she told me it was kind of a reaction to uh complaints around too much timeline hopping in tv right now to do an entire episode one in media res (laughs) and and just sort of double down on um those complaints and show that maybe there is a there is a way to do it that's effective and i think she really made her point it's a really tense and strange hour because you you know the back half of it of course is after candy does the deed and you see her go about her day like you were talking about earlier katie um yeah it's, it's really fascinating and i think that melanie linsky brings so much to the show as betty um, and giving you this um, alternate kind of story to what to Candy's, and there are a lot of parallels mm-hmm. the show draws between them over time. Yeah, I mean, 
I think where I start to to lose track on the show a little bit is I see this episode, I'm like, oh, it's the two of them. It's both of their stories. And the show is both of their stories. But I think Betty recedes more and more as the show goes on mm-hmm. because she's, as a character, she's stuck. And this is what people say about the real Betty Gord, that she wasn't especially happy. She probably struggled with depression. She was thought she might be pregnant the day that she died and wasn't really happy about that. And that's a really hard thing to play. And if you're, if anyone is going to do a great job with it, it is Melanie Linsky and she does get, you know, good moments in there. But like in episode two in particular, where she has this foster child who she just clashes with for what feel to me as, as a parent, like not entirely fair reasons. (laughs) Um, I, I, I struggle with how they're trying to, make Betty feel more well-rounded by by adding those things in there, but still just kind of getting around to like, yeah, that's a that's an unhappy person. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal, right? I mean, it, it gets to be uh, a little bit sticky when you are ultimately landing in Candy's point of view. Um, and a lot of what was said about Betty in the courtroom about her size, her personality, the way she raised her children was pretty brutal. And mm. I, th- I think the show really wanted to avoid giving her that sort of angelic um, dead woman narrative. Mm. They wanted to uh-huh. give her flaws and a prick- the prickly personality that most everyone who knew her says she had. But there's just an inevitable imbalance, I think, in that Candy lives on and her story lives on and Betty's does not. Yeah. And it do- yeah, it does leave a... Slightly sour taste, I think, maybe intentionally. Yeah, I think the place where it where it plays out the best is when you get the other women in the town involved and the, kind of the church gossips. And then after Betty's death, you know, they kind of descend on her husband to try yeah. to win him over. One of them actually succeeds in it. Um, and kind of the sexism and the the clickishness and stuff like that, that some that Betty struggled with. I think that contrast plays out really well. And you just see. Because in real life, there are people like Candy who kind of glide through things more. And then there are people like Betty who get stuck in them more. Mm-hmm. And the, I almost wish for more of the community aspect of it. Totally. Not that they, I mean, they have these women at church a lot, but I, I think you can see the way these dynamics played out when you almost get more people in the room. Yeah. I think those scenes are among the most clarifying for yeah. who Betty was. And it, it's a more sympathetic view in a lot of ways because it is a very clicky um, particular group of women that she just does not fit in with in any way. Yeah. Yeah. And the men kind of um, struggling to not struggling to keep up with the women, but just kind of so oblivious and like on their own. Like there, it's not overplaying it sometimes, but you know, you hear audio of like Timothy Simons as uh, Candy's husband being like, what's a skate key? Where can I find it? <laughs> um, and, you know, credit to him for taking his kids skating, I guess. But uh, I, I like the contrast it drives between them. And I thought, you know, Timothy Simons, we talked about Pablo Schreiber, but I thought Timothy Simons was also uh, really great totally. as Tapple's husband. Yeah. I think all four of the leads are really great in the show. Yeah. And in their um, remarkably terrible ways. <laughs> the show kind of turns into a courtroom drama more as it goes on. And we can talk about those episodes. But you mentioned what they said about Betty in, in the courtroom in real life. Like, how much of that do you see in the show as they try to um, give her a fair shake? Like, what what are we missing that um, that they said in court? Yeah, in some ways, I was surprised by how much the action went outside of the courtroom uh, in order to stick closely to Candy's perspective. And you mm. know, there is a little a literal reenactment. There are actually a few reenactments um, over the course of the the finale. Um, but I think the main thing that you lose. 
which I, I would imagine is an editorial choice, is more of Betty's side of the story. And uh-huh. that's obviously not presented by by Betty. And as the Texas Monthly article particularly outlines, it's not a case that unfortunately holds up very well because one of the really interesting things about this um, actual trial was everyone was shocked when Candy went in deciding to claim self-defense. And she recounts her story in like very vivid detail and is pressed on a few different occasions to do so and does so in a way where it leaves the prosecution um, pretty flat footed and unable to Mm. catch up to her. And so that's another thing I think that the show leans into a little bit, not necessarily directly, but obviously in the outcome. Um, But yeah, you don't get that other side as much of where the Betty side was coming from. Yeah, I kind of wondered, especially after um, watching The Staircase, if we were going to get Betty's version of the story. I mean, it would have been pretty hard to watch, I think. Um, and I don't know what it would have looked like, but it did make me wonder, like, what, what's the other version of this? Like, what did the proxy, what, what was the story that they, that they laid out? I mean, I guess, I guess we see a special guest star who we can talk about in a minute, suggest one version of it. But did, did you want to see almost more? Yeah, I, I think that. This this is a unique one from the staircase in that um, we don't have as much information about everything around it, um, mm-hmm. and it's such a the staircase. We have an exceptional <laughs> amount of information. We don't have a thirteen episode <laughs> Netflix documentary <laughs> for starters, and that you know hundreds of hours of footage uh, yeah. <laughs> as the trial was going on. Um, yeah, but I, I think that it is something, and I believe that. Um, those who knew Betty Gore have actually spoken out about this a little bit. Um, there is a little bit of a sense of wh- where do you draw the line between um, depicting Betty uh, as she was or as youth as we think she was as as a real person and giving her that equal say um, mm-hmm. that Candy has. And I don't think it's the show's intent to do so, but yeah, when you're watching those courtroom scenes and you have spent all this time with Betty and then you're just kind of left with this really uh, intense recounting from Candy that is ultimately what got her acquitted. Um, it, it, there's, yeah, there's that, again, there's that sense of slight imbalance. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like it's a show saying like, well, this is all we can go on, you yep, know, exactly. like this is, this is the version of the story that the courts have decided is true. So we're going to present it to you. Yeah. And that's exactly what Robin says in her interview. It's that, you yeah, know, this is the and that's something she really wanted to make clear is this is our version, this is Candy's version, and there her interest is in what it means to dramatize that one side of the story, and I think the show certainly makes you think about that. Yeah, well, should we talk about our guest stars then? Yes. Speaking of dramatizing Let's do it. <laughs> a side of the story, uh, so episode four is when we see the arrival of one Mr. Justin Timberlake, uh, aka Mr. Jessica Beale. Um, as the, um, I'm sure his character has a name that I'm not thinking of da- right now. Steven, uh, And is he a real person he is, or he is, is he a, okay. Uh, so he's the, the cop investigating the murder basically. Um, and you know, I feel like it's been a long time since I've seen him and I was, I guess it some sort of felt inevitable that he would be in it, but also <laughs> Jessica Biel has been making other shows that he's not in. So, um, I, I was so happy to see him. How about you? I was thrilled to see him. Um, it's not necessarily the role you'd expect him to play, but yeah, to your point, there there is already this meta quality to the show and the 
nature of storytelling and the nature of true crime that adding in these extra layers um, makes sense. There is, of course, one extra layer that comes into episode five, Katie. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, um, um, yeah, we should uh, we should get there, though, because that's where that's where the meta-ness I, so in episode five, it opens with Justin Timberlake and a, a police partner played by Jason Ritter, who is the husband of Melanie Linsky. So we have both of the husbands there uh, pretending to be. I can't remember who's pretending to be who. Are they each pretending to be their wife? Yes. So that, they are their role play. They are there. They're playing the characters played by their wives. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I kind of selected what happened and I was like, okay, this is just silly. Like we can't like be in this serious murder show and then have like both of these guys show up at the same time. But I think you were telling me from your conversation with Robin that like that, that breaking the fourth wall is really part of the point. Yeah, that, that is, and, and, um, listeners can hear them talk about that as well. Uh, it, it evolved really organically for them where Justin Timberlake was interested in joining the show. Jason Ritter had a mustache. <laughs> they were like, what's Jason up to? And, and then he looks like he's in the eighties already. <laughs> Just bring him in. And, and you are seeing, um, within this reenactment that the two actors do, um, a statement from the show as a whole on the fact that you're watching a fiction and you're watching a version and that there mm-hmm. is something to be said for the comedy of the finale leading into a very intense overall final episode, which yes. I think also reflects the show's tone as a whole, maybe not as extreme, because I think episode five, you get extremes on both sides in a way you don't necessarily beforehand. Um, yeah. I also found it interesting that, uh, and as listeners heard, they were unsure of how Justin and Jason would play it in terms of, I mean, and Jess, you heard Jessica do the voice of whether Jason uh, and Justin would play it as women, as the actual wives, <laughs> high-pitched voices and all, or if they would do what they ultimately did, which is dopey guys trying to sound yeah. like their wives. And <laughs> It is really funny, yeah, it the is. two of them together. Yeah. And that also they left that in they left it up to interpretation for the actors which i think you see come through yeah yeah i mean the the balance of comedy and murder is something that's existed in you know movies forever and you know maybe we think of it more with like the 90s and quentin tarantino and the coen brothers and stuff like that i I would say candy certainly fits into that legacy Mm -hmm. it felt more in the like oppressive intense realm i think the cinematography has a ton to do with that and like how underlit every single room in this texas town is (laughs) um so the the comedy coming in at the end there i think you saying that the final episode has more extremes of both like does that feel like a successful strategy for for it to end in this way um the finale has gotten more mixed reviews uh, than the rest of the show from what i i can tell and i think that is because it's a delicate um mix for a yeah. show that is ultimately about something really both ambiguous and gruesome and yeah i i, I go back and forth on that question i I, mm-hmm. I think that watching this first of all apparently underlighting is a requirement of a true crime drama airing in spring 2022 <laughs> it is not a, also ozark yes. which is not based on a true well, story ozark most infamously <laughs> but yeah it is it is not alone uh this season in in that regard no. um but yeah i i'm of the opinion that 
the show had a lot of has a lot of work to do in that finale that it there's no way it could mm-hmm. tell you suppose like I saw a couple people say like what was the point of this what what do we take away from this and it's it's an ambi- as ambiguous a question as the crime is at the show center and yeah that's a tough old thing to leave a viewer with and i think the show is successful in doing that i just don't know how much mileage the show can get out of that yeah i mean i think asking like when you get to the end of something what was the point of this is such an unfair and i i i'm not above it like i have certainly gotten sure, into something yeah. and being like well that wasn't a great use of my time um <laughs> but i think the reason that true crime stories like this are being excavated is almost because other true crime stories have been excavated. Like it's kind of like a self propelling machine. Yeah. And I think this and the staircase in particular are just so interesting in the way that they ask questions about why we do this. Um, And candy in particular, I think gets into issues about like how women are depicted, how, um, you know, women support each other and turn on each other. The way that in that final episode, candy's affair, uh, the second affair becomes almost more of a scandal than the murder. Yeah. Uh, I thought was really pointed and really interesting. Um, so it, it it all just goes so much beyond like, well, who, how can we find out who did it and who really wielded the axe? And I, I think that the questions it brings up in that final episode are really successful in leaving you uncertain the way that they wanted you to be. Yeah. What does it mean to kind of fall for and believe Candy Montgomery? And then when do you turn mm-hmm. on her? Yeah, I think that I also thought that was such an interesting choice and really reflective of the show as a whole. Um, Robin Veith was has been a writer on shows like Mad Men in the past. She described her attraction to the show as the most Mad Men ex-murderer story she could ever come across. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, female rage is also a big running theme in the show through to a really visual um, interest in that, in the end there, uh, in the way that they depict that. Yeah, I mean, now you're making me think about Candy and that you know, that final shot where she kind of pops a peppermint in her mouth, like, and Don Draper and the final shot of Mad Men. Like, it's his <laughs> big so idea. True. It all, uh, they all, they feel very linked. They would probably get along. Um, can I ask, like, a, a detail question about the courtroom scene? And I don't know if this is me being a, a lazy viewer. The implication is that she was sleeping with the lawyer, right? I believe so, yes. That I don't we didn't... know was in the article as much, though. I don't think so. Um, but there's, like, a shot of him, like, like self tanning in his office, I think. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, he was like under a red like heat lamp, um, and yeah, I just you know that was that was kind of a nice like bit of ambiguity because you believe it that they would be sleeping together, um, but I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. Yeah, no, and that actually that's an interesting moment too because you know if you read the Texas Monthly article, it's actually two articles. Um, yeah, you will see at times how, just how close the show is to um, the way that, you know, to that version of events, to that depiction of what happened. Um, And it's nice when the show does go outside of that a little bit and and zooms out to show something a little weirder or, uh, like you said, a little more ambiguous. Um, I think that's the strength of these shows and fictionalization is a larger component of Under the Banner of Heaven and The Staircase than it is of this show. Um, and I think maybe that's something that viewers would have liked a little bit more, is fiction doesn't necessarily um, undermine uh, a true story. It, it can enhance it in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, there's a note at the end of every episode that says, effectively, like, these events, this show is not intended to reflect any actual person or entity. And yeah. I, I, that feels a little, <laughs> like, all right. 
Sure. Um, I mean, I get it. Like, you want to be able to tell a story, and but these are not, this isn't Elizabeth Holmes. You know, these are not, like, well-known public figures. Like, probably there's, like, a legal element to that. But yeah. you want them to be able to make something satisfying without, you know, breaking people's hearts, which, you know, maybe just by the show existing, it, it's going to do no matter what. Yeah, and as as we have learned with these shows, there's just going to be inevitable... Um, negative negative reactions from folks who were involved who did know these people who knew them better than we could who even better than robin veith could or jessica beale yeah. um and that makes it tricky too is writing something or acting in something or filming something where you know you're putting it out there for people to see who maybe know better than you or know differently than you have a different perspective and it, it just inevitably gets very messy yeah, I, right before you recorded this, I was reading a piece in the Deseret News um, where Brenda Lafferty's sister, um, who is still Sharon Wright Weeks, who's still alive, was just basically like, yeah, they got it all wrong. This is not uh, the story I would have tell. And, um, you know, that show, as we talked about on last week's episode, is like much more complicated in the way it's getting into the Mormon church. Yep. And there are people who are in the Mormon church whose families are depicted in the show. And, but uh, yeah, and, and you, you want them to be able to speak out, right? Like you have the right to to come and try to set the record straight. And I guess in some ways the nightmare is that like the fictional version becomes history. I don't know if that's what's going to happen in this case. Yeah. And that one's a really stark example because it's entirely seen through the eyes of a fictional character, which gives you a lot more artistic freedom, but it also, yeah, it's more of, it's going to be quote unquote wrong. Even if that's not necessarily the barometer we should use for judging art, however, factual, some of its content may be. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe to wrap up, I don't want to like rank the, the murder shows, especially because several of them haven't wrapped yet, even though Candy was, um, Candy, Candy was so brief, but do you feel like we're at a pivot point for stories about this, that like shows about, uh, white women being murdered in their homes as the staircase under the banner of heaven and Candy all are, um, are, are these shows examining and turning the format on its head in a way that you can't just do a straightforward version of this anymore? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's hard to imagine coming out of this spring, going back to true crime uh, straight up, or at least mm -hmm. um, the kinds of true crime stories that are getting the play that they're getting, which is, as you say, these are overwhelmingly white shows. These are shows about white women being murdered in their homes. I mean, quite specifically, all three of them um, untangle that. and. I think the staircase does very intently the best job of just asking every question one of these shows can ask about why we care, why these shows and series keep getting made, yeah. what the public fascination is around the trials, because of course, before the fictional show, there was, in most cases, an actual media circus around the actual events. So mm -hmm. there are also multiple... Um, stages of this and in the case of candy i mean you asked you asking this question makes me think of the fact that this exact um case is going to be dramatized again in yeah. an hbo max series starring elizabeth olsen lily rabe and jesse plemons uh, among others it's called love and death it's from david e kelly who knows his way around uh a buzzy crime drama but to your point you know candy um whatever flaws you might think it has doesn't give you a straightforward version. It does something interesting. It does something mm -hmm. uh, unnerving and getting 
a more straightforward version of that after this would be very disappointing, in my opinion. Yeah, I think maybe if we're going to do straightforward uh, murder dramas, maybe it's the Big Little Lies route where you just based on fiction and like let people tell a juicy story all they want. Um, maybe not make it all about white women. That that also feels a little <laughs> a little like we're out of it. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that made me think of We Own the City, which is also airing right now mm-hmm. uh, on HBO and is about real crime um, that is about, you know, the police being the bad guys and a lot of a lot of different people being uh, affected by it, predominantly black. So. Maybe that's a, a place to go for something a little bit different in this realm. Yeah. There's plenty of true stories and they don't all have to be rooted in the murder of a woman in her house. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that probably does it for this. Um, we'll continue to be back with more Still Watching. We're going to be covering uh, more shows as they come out because there, again, is so much to talk about. Um, but in the meantime, at Vanity Fair, you can read David's preview about Candy from a while back, as well as at least two pieces about the show as it was airing, maybe three, um, including more from um, Robin and Jessica Beal. Um, and David, where else can people find you if they want to find you? I can find me on Twitter at DavidCanfield97. Uh, and I am at Katie Rich, and I'm also joining a church volleyball league. If you want to join me, David, it's uh, all, all on the up and up. Oh, Nothing yeah. untoward will happen uh, in those evenings. Don't barge into a man's car and say you're going to have an affair, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. This episode, as always, was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. Dave Gonzalez.